I hope you realize after hearing that passage read how privileged you are. How privileged we all are to have God speak to us and show us how majestic, how mighty, how holy, how awesome He is. Any child will tell you that life is a whole lot of waiting. Waiting for school break. Waiting for vacation. Waiting for Christmas. Waiting for birthdays. Waiting to be grown up. As an adult, it's interesting to see that waiting doesn't get so exciting as it was as a child. We wait for our hair to fall out and grow bald. We wait for the slim figure of our teenage years to disappear under the weight gain that happens as we grow older. You wait reluctantly for things to inevitably come like like birthdays, actually. Or more sobering things like medical tests to come back. But still there are some things even in adulthood that we, we look forward to, we wait for with some expectation. We, we look forward to having kids or having a family. We look forward to seeing those kids grow up. We look forward to being excited with them as we watch them rejoice in the things that they rejoice in. We look forward to retirement. We look forward to breaks and rest. We look forward to vacation. Lots of things to still be excited about and waiting as an adult. But what if you woke up every day waiting for an army to invade your country and take everyone you know and perhaps yourself into slavery? What would that experience of waiting be like? Well, that's the situation that we are in the middle of in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet that lived long ago in Israel's time. We saw last week in the first two chapters of this book, this vision that Habakkuk records that he's been given from God, that an army from Babylon is coming to judge the wickedness of the people of Israel. And we also saw how God promised that He would not only punish Israel, but He would punish Babylon as well for coming and striking down the people of God. Habakkuk learns in that, as we learn, that God is just in punishing sin. God is faithful in keeping His promises. And God is glorious in accomplishing His purposes. The phrase in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, which reads, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. That phrase reveals that there is hope for God's people in the middle of judgment. And the way to endure this judgment is to go on trusting God. So all the things we saw last week. Now, Habakkuk responds to God for the last time. He had asked questions. God had answered. He'd come back with more questions. God had given an answer and a magnificent show of Himself to Habakkuk. If Habakkuk 2.4 was the theme verse for chapters 1 and 2, then chapter 3 is the living picture of what it looks like to respond to God by living by faith. What it looks like to live out Habakkuk 2.4. The beginning and ending words of this chapter indicate that it was turned into a song likely for temple worship, meant to be sung by Israel as they waited out the days until Babylon came and invaded. This chapter, Habakkuk 3, is instruction for us. It is a manual for God's people on how to live by faith. 
So how can we live by faith? Our outline this morning will answer that question. We will see four ways this chapter instructs us in living by faith. Praying, remembering, waiting, and rejoicing. Praying, remembering, waiting, and rejoicing. In verses 1 and 2 that we just heard read, so I won't read them again, Habakkuk's response to God's answer to him, to his questions in chapter 2, is different than his response in the previous two interactions with God. Habakkuk had been full of questions for God. And in chapter 2, verse 1, even before he hears God's answer, we see Habakkuk preparing another question, loading up his gun, ready to shoot again, as soon as God comes back to him, knowing that he's going to need to give an answer. But as we come to chapter 3, we realize that preloaded question from Habakkuk, it never comes. Never really comes. Nor does God really ever answer Habakkuk's first question. How long? It's interesting. Instead, the Lord consistently delivers a picture of Himself. A revelation of Himself and His plans. And Habakkuk realizes that a different response is now appropriate. Not questions. But prayer. But prayer. When God chooses to send hardship, affliction, or trial, the place to go is to Him. Is to Him. God will gladly have us talk to Him in the hardest circumstances. Sometimes we interpret trials in our life as God putting distance between Him and us. As if He's mad at us. Actually, Trial is more like God's, if God is our shepherd, trial is like his sheepdog that he sends out to come and and gather us and bring us back nearer and closer to him. Last week we saw how prayer is a place to come and ask questions to God with the appropriate humility and teachability. Now we see another use of prayer. It's how we align ourselves to God's purposes. The fact that Habakkuk even fears in verse 2 means that he has accepted God's message to him finally. Fear in this case is evidence of his faith. His heart is aligned to God's purposes to judge. Prayer is faith in practice. It rests our reality in the way that God sees things. It sharpens our vision to see just just what God is doing in our life. When Jesus teaches us through His disciples, when He teaches us to pray in the words of the Lord's Prayer, the first thing He has us to do is agree with God. To agree with His purposes. To glorify His name. To bring His kingdom. To do His will. So let's spend time in our prayers, first and foremost, aligning ourselves to God. Agreeing with what God has brought into our lives. And prayer is also the place to plead with God. We see that here in Habakkuk. Habakkuk asks not just for wrath, but to remember mercy in the midst of wrath. Habakkuk saw the wrath of God promised against Israel. Yes, he accepts it, but that doesn't keep him from pleading that God would show mercy. That's because God's mercy, Habakkuk knows, is the only way out of God's wrath. God's mercy is the only way out of God's wrath. God shows mercy... By not treating us the way our sins deserve to be treated. And Habakkuk is asking that God not treat Israel as their sins deserve. You know, perhaps Habakkuk, in pleading for mercy, is also pleading on behalf of Babylon 
his enemies. That God would show mercy as there as well. We don't know. But Jesus prayed for us, his enemies. He prayed, Father, forgive them. And Jesus became the way that mercy came to us as our punishment and God's wrath fell on Him at the cross. Church, we want to be a church that prays for mercy. We want to be a a church that that wants Christ in this in-between time. In the time between when He came and showed mercy on the cross and the time when He will come once and for all to judge this world and deliver God's wrath. In this space, in the middle of those years, we want to be a church that is on our knees to God crying mercy. Show mercy to those around us who are objects of Your wrath, God. May we be the people who carry the message of mercy to those who are lost. You see, the prayers of faithful, of faithful people are pleas to God to make more faithful people by saving them. So praying is how we live by faith. The second way we live by faith is by, re, is by remembering. We see that primarily in this middle, large middle section in verses 3 through 15. You can see Habakkuk's main emphasis in this chapter. If you stack up the amount of verses he spends talking about God, you can see Habakkuk wants us and Israel and anyone who reads this to walk away with a massive picture of God. Habakkuk deals with the news of coming judgment by looking to the past, specifically what God has done and what God's works reveal about God's character. So he remembers God's works. Verses 3 through 15 are something of a a highlight reel of God's redemptive acts in Israel over the years, over their history. Habakkuk's time where he is positioned right now was not the first time God had, had chosen people, chosen to follow chosen them to follow him. And it wasn't the first time that those people were up against the threat of enemies or invasion. See, much of the language that Habakkuk uses here takes us back hundreds of years in Israel's history, back nearer to the beginning of this nation, when God led his people out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. See, it all started, that story, it started in the south. In Taman, that's the Hebrew word for south that you see there. On a mountain in the region of Paran. On a mountain called Sinai. There God chose Israel as His people. From there God led His people through the enemy lands of Kushan and Midian. Mentioned here in verse 7. And as Israel arrived in Canaan, they were opposed by the kings and the people there. And Joshua chapter 10 tells the story that Habakkuk recalls in verse 11. How as Israel was defeating these enemies, Joshua calls out to God to ask for more, more time so that they could accomplish victory over their enemies that day. And God answers by making the sun stand still. And all the images of water and rivers and waves that you see repeated in these verses... They all paint the picture, reminding us of the day that God brought the Red Sea down on the Egyptian army and drowned them all in the Red Sea, ending the oppression of Egypt against God's people. All those great works in Israel's history stacked up together present one obvious truth. Only God Only God could have done all that. Habakkuk never attributes any of these successes and victories to Israel. The works of God reveal the God who works. Specifically what He's like. His character. So what do we learn in this passage about God from His works? 
we learn that God is glorious. Verses 3 and 4. He's so awesome that uh, Moses on Mount Sinai had to be hid in a rock from God's glory so that he wouldn't die. Even when his power is veiled, verse 4, it can be seen from everywhere. Throughout the heavens, his splendor shines in brightness and in lightning. We see that God is awesome in verse 5 and 6. He's fearful and daunting. He often judged with plagues. He judged Egypt with ten plagues for their rebellion against Him. And Habakkuk portrays God in verse 6 as taller than even the mountains. And as one so powerful that he can look at a mountain and it crumbles. We see that God is the just one who exercises His wrath in verses 7-10. through God is an army of one. The whole description of God is set against the description of Babylon's army that we saw earlier in chapter 1 and 2. See, Babylon in that day had a very impressive army full of horses and chariots. But if you read about God's army Himself, Babylon's army just doesn't even compare. See, God uses war machines of entire oceans, of seas of rivers as he marches through to accomplish his victory. Babylon may have marched through some cities, but God is able to step on entire nations and trample them under his foot. We also see God is the creator who governs the stars, the moon, and the sun in verse 11. Babylon may have heaped up some piles of dirt dirt so that they could invade cities they came against. But God rearranges the heavens, the sun and the moon, to accomplish His purposes. In verse 14, we see God is in control of everything and in control of everyone. You know, it's one thing to be able to overcome someone with your own force, maybe in hand-to-hand combat. It's a different level of power altogether to defeat someone without doing anything. That's the kind of power God displays in verse 14. So if God can use somebody's strength against them, it seems that God is warning us that what we perceive to be our greatest strength may be the thing that leads to our destruction. Beware of pride in yourself. God isn't impressed. The final thing we see about God in His character is that He is a saving God. God is the deliverer of His people in verse 13. When Israel has been threatened in the past, God has marched out to deliver them and save them. So He comes in verse 3. He goes out in verse 13. And God often used leaders that He selected, anointed or chosen ones as He called them, to do this, to deliver this salvation. So Moses and Samuel and the judges and Saul even and David, these were all deliverers that God used to bring His punishment on the wicked and to bring His salvation to the people of God. God is a saving God. So in all this, Habakkuk is remembering God's character and His works. And as we look at this, it gives us the opportunity, doesn't it? To consider, or maybe reconsider, our view of God. But why is Habakkuk looking back when the Babylonian invasion is coming in the future. You would think that he'd get back up on that watchtower that he was on in chapter 2 and be just anxiously sort of wringing his hands and waiting for an army to appear on the horizon and the sound of the horses and the, and the chariots to be come, coming. Well, he looks back because when he sees God's past work and his character... 
he's at one and the same time seeing a view of the future. God's ways have been in place forever. His were the everlasting ways, verse 6. Who he is and how he works, it, it never changes. God works according to an everlasting plan. And if you read through the whole Bible, you start to notice a pattern to that plan. It works in something of a cycle, really. So here's the cycle you can see. It has four parts to it. First you have creation. And not just creation of the world at that, at that first moment, but repeated creation as God creates a people for Himself. So you have creation. And then the second stage you have is rebellion or sin. Followed by a third stage of God's judgment. And then finally, God bringing salvation through a deliverer. Creation, rebellion, judgment, and salvation. So the cycle, if you think about major stories in the Bible, Eden happens there. Egypt, it happens there. In Canaan, happens there. And in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, it's happening now in Habakkuk's time. It's being repeated again. See, God had created Israel to be His people. Israel had rebelled against the Lord. God was sending the judgment through Babylon. But, according to God's pattern, what could Habakkuk expect next? Salvation. Salvation through an anointed deliverer. God's ways in this way are unchanging. This is the central point of the book of Habakkuk. This is God's message. Salvation will come for God's people. The righteous will live and survive even when empires and nations may be crumbling around them. It's interesting that this word anointed in verse 13 is only used one other place in all the prophetic books. It's used in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 1. There, God promises that after this Babylonian invasion happens in Israel, God will use His anointed deliverer, Cyrus, the king of Persia, to deliver Israel. And that's what happens, actually, historically. But Habakkuk 3, verse 13, anticipates something, must be anticipating something, and does anticipate something far beyond just Cyrus defeating one army in all of history, the Babylonians. After after all this is said and done, will the house of wickedness really be crushed forever? No. There's evil far beyond Babylon. There was evil in the world before Babylon was a mighty nation and surely it will continue after. And no human being could turn that right. See, there's a promise that was made that Cyrus couldn't fulfill. And we find that promise in Genesis 3, verse 15. Turn there if you have your Bibles or we have it here on the projector. Here's what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The context of this promise is just after God has created and Adam and Eve have rebelled. God is promising in in the curse against sin that death will be the judgment against sin. But in this verse, He's promising salvation. He's promising that He Himself will completely end evil and wickedness. He's promising that someone will come who will once and for all crush wickedness and evil. And we see in verse 13 of Habakkuk that God has coming. It's He, God Himself, who's coming to do this. Not someone for Him. Did you know that God made this promise? Did you know that this was in His plan? And did you know 
that in the time between when Habakkuk saw this vision to the time that we sit here today, this promise has been answered. The anointed one promised has come. Jesus Christ was the final and perfect Messiah. He came to deliver God's promise because He is God. He is the Son of God. He came and lived perfectly as God. He never did what we did, which was sin. Certainly, He wasn't created, but He became a man for us. He died sacrificially. He died to take the punishment of God's wrath against us on Himself. He paid that penalty to deliver salvation to His people. He rose from the dead. And sin and death may have bruised Him for those few hours on the cross. They may have temporarily bruised Him as they thought that they could keep Him in that grave for just a few days. But when Christ rose, sin was crushed. And evil was ended forever. It would never crush again. It would never rise again. So Jesus' death and resurrection are the focal point of God's redemptive pattern that we were just looking at, aren't they? We see all of it combined right there. Created. Jesus, not created as God, but became man for us. Rebellion is what we've done and we deserve punishment. Judgment, the cross is where judgment is displayed. Salvation, if you will believe in Christ's death and resurrection for you and repent of your sin and leave it behind and follow Jesus instead and recognize His authority in your life instead of your own, His salvation will be delivered to you. Through the anointed one, Jesus Christ. So sin was defeated on the cross. Salvation was accomplished. So why are we still surrounded by sin? Why do we struggle with it? Why do we see evil people doing better than us and prospering in this world? This is the frustration we experience and it's real it's a real frustration when we look around at at injustice in this world the cross is in our past we know that but there's sin in our present you know that's why God gives us the gift of faith it's a good gift to help us not just see that but to lift our eyes higher than that and to be able to see God's big picture. To see where we are in God's purpose of history. We are in the final phase. God has promised that sin will be removed forever. And what Christ has done is the assurance that that will surely be done. Those who have trusted in Christ have now been recreated. We are born again. We have new hearts. Sin still resides in us and in our world though. But God is coming. And that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for judgment and salvation to be played out finally. God is coming to judge sin once and for all. When He judges wickedness in our world, He will then deliver us finally from this sinful world, from our sinful bodies, and take us to a glorious heaven. And you know what? The pattern we see over and over will never happen again. It will never be repeated again once Christ comes. Instead, unending life. Perfectly recreated bodies. No more sin. Judgment will be complete. And you know what we'll think about all the time? Our salvation that we were given. And praise to God for delivering it to us through Jesus Christ. And sometimes when we read an old book like this, in the back, prophetic book, a little obscure sometimes, 
It's hard to connect ourselves to it and to the people in the Old Testament. It's like, how do we bridge that gap? Their world seems so far off from ours, doesn't it, sometimes? We're not up against the threat of an invading army, for one. It might be difficult to see the relevance of this passage for us if we view it that way. But if we connect ourselves instead of to Israel, but to God, by remembering His nature and His unchanging plan that He's working out through all of history, then we can look forward to God's coming salvation just as much as Habakkuk and Israel did. Remembering is the second way we live by faith. Third, we live by faith by waiting. Verse 16, let's read that. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. After this magnificent view of God, Habakkuk responds. And Habakkuk's body moves before his mouth ever speaks. No surprise that a God who shatters mountains by looking at them would leave a human being shaken to his core. One of the greatest dangers to us in this modern world is that we become desensitized to the infinite chasm that separates us and God. Movies show monsters that can step on cities and wreck them. So what's the big deal if God levels nations? The media brings tragedy into our living room, first-hand pictures and reports of of cyclones and tsunamis, floods and earthquakes, and, and every time we look at them right there in front of our face but are unaffected by them in our physical reality, doesn't it make us feel just maybe a tad bit safer every time? Every time you're not affected? As if those types of things will never happen to us? And we've made a lot of progress, haven't we? Not as many babies die in the first couple years of life as they used to. Not as many mothers die giving birth to those babies. People generally live longer than their ancestors in this day and age. For many of us then, the modern conveniences and inventions of this world seem to lure us, pulling death and judgment out of our direct view pulling it into the periphery at best. With all this, there's a subtle temptation creeps in to think of ourselves as more like God's, which causes us to think of God as just like us. Is your mental picture of God similar to what you see in the mirror every morning? Just because the world we live in does not hold God in awe does not diminish God's awesomeness. And this will be terribly clear when he comes in judgment. Habakkuk fears when he actually sees this full vision of God, and so will we. So will we. As one author comments, fear is a heightened state of alertness. It is an intuitive acknowledgement of our weakness. It has to do with awe. And awe, when you face up to the God of the universe, is one of the few appropriate responses. Habakkuk is feeling like his body is coming undone, yet he doesn't crumble under fear. He has instruction from the Lord. There is salvation coming after judgment. So he resolves to trust God by waiting. No more questions from Habakkuk. Just quiet waiting for judgment to come. And in this, Habakkuk points us to another. He points us to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before He was crucified. As Jesus anticipated taking God's wrath and judgment for us on the cross, His bodies showed the same kind of trauma, even greater, as His pores Blood started dripping out of them. His blood flowing down. Yet He told the Father, Father, not my will, 
but yours be done. And he waited for the army to come and arrest him and crucify him. He stood silent on trial before unjust accusations. And the scripture says, like a lamb before his shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. And why? Because as he walked silently through, he knew the next day he would deliver our salvation. Even though Habakkuk may fear the invasion, he trusts. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? You see that trusting God will bring comfort in the face of any fear? Any fear. Greater is God who is in our hearts than anything that is in this world. The more we know of God, the more we will wait on Him. Habakkuk has come a long way since chapter 1. God has shaped him and grown him, even as Habakkuk has answered questions and wrestled with God. And there's a progression in this book of noise being reduced to stillness. Shouts of violence and injustice that open the book, now muted by God and by righteous faith. Have we come to a place of quiet before the Lord? Humbly submitted to His purposes and knowing His timing is best. How do we grow in this? If the answer is no. How do we grow to come to that place? Well, fear of God creates stillness before God, for one. I suppose Habakkuk could have gone on questioning, could have kept asking, kept fighting back. But would he dare? Would he dare do that after what he's just seen of God? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, it closes with this statement, God is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. Would Habakkuk launch another lobby of questions? If we were face to face in a cage with a lion, would our first instinct be to punch it in the face? Oh, we would freeze. How much more when face to face with the living God? Could we ever presume nonchalantly to walk into His throne room to see the perfect angels there covering their eyes because God is too holy for them? To see the thousands upon thousands bowing in worship, crying out over and over, holy, 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 See the scepter of power in God's hand. See the universe in the palm of His hand. And presume to ask the question, why are you doing this to me? To presume to ask, Lord, and to declare, Lord, Your ways are not best. Oh, friends, we wouldn't get one foot over the threshold before we were too on our face before His glory. So often we approach God in prayer like that, though, don't we? I do. Nonchalantly. Carelessly. Ready with my questions. Not ready to listen. Our hearts in weakness and misunderstanding, in suffering and in trials, in confusion and pride, how long we linger in our questions, how reluctant we are to accept God's answers. So if we see that tendency in us, how do we address it? Well, as we walk through this life, let's keep looking for ways that we can have a clear view of the throne room of God, of His glory on display. There's so many distractions that will try to crowd that out. We've got to cut them out. Beware of desires that turn into demands for God. Hunt for hidden idols. Meditate on Scripture. Relentlessly turn your conversations toward God with others. Toward God and what He's doing to accomplish His glory in your life. In the middle of your trials, ceaselessly pray that the Spirit would keep your eyes on the Lord. Whatever it takes, let's do it. To keep our glory, to keep the glory of God in view. 
some of the greatest and clearest witnesses to God's saving power are those around us who continue to endure trials by trusting and waiting on God. So Andy and Glacey, we prayed for you earlier this morning. I know Glacey isn't here with us back in the Philippines, but I hope she hears this. You're showing us what it means to wait in faith even as you've heard the news of your cancer this week. Melinda, we prayed for you earlier. The loss of your brother. You give us a picture of stillness before God in the midst of sadness over the loss of your brother. Still, you trust your Lord. Frank and Sneha prayed for you amid prolonged health problems and injustices suffered at the hands of others. We've seen your steadfast faith. With God's help, you've been pictures to us. Pictures of what God means when He calls us to walk by faith. So if any of you in this room are having trouble eating well, let me encourage you to talk to these brothers and sisters or others you know and learn from them, by God's grace, what He has taught them and how to wait on Him. We live with effects of sin's curse that wreck lives around us. We see injustices that enslave some while those who enslave them go on and prosper. Evil doesn't seem to end but only breeds other evils. Brother and sister, God has called us to wait. Let's wait. Let's wait. God's going to judge all of this. He is. He's going to do it. He's promised. He will make every wrong right. He will dry up every tear. He will wipe away every sickness. He will avenge every drop of His people's blood that has been shed by our persecutors in this world. Every drop. That's the picture of the end of wickedness. Terrible picture. And yet God in His justice is so glorious when we read it in Revelation. The picture we had read to us earlier this morning. Wait. God is coming. Finally, we live by faith, by rejoicing. Let's read verses 17 to 19 again. Before I read it, it's just, if you read from Habakkuk 1.1 and you get to this point, Habakkuk's response just takes your breath away. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Verse 16 is before the Babylonian invasion. And verse 17 is Habakkuk envisioning Israel after the invasion comes. It is total destruction and devastation. There's no food. There's no cattle. There's nothing to live on. Everything has been wiped out. There's this three-letter word, so small and so significant. Yet. Yet. If that will be the case, Habakkuk says, this will be my response. Joy in the God of my salvation. You know, happiness and joy are often confused, but they are not the same thing. Happiness is attached to our present circumstances. Joy is attached to God. So while our circumstances may change, and with them, those changes bring happiness or sadness, God will never change. And so we will always be able to be fully satisfied, fully content, fully at peace, fully secure in Him. That produces confidence in God, which in turn produces joy in God. We have joy in God when we trust Him, praise Him, are grateful to Him and honor Him no matter what circumstances we are living in.
This kind of joy is the evidence of a life lived by faith. Habakkuk openly recognizes the coming loss of all of life's necessities, but keeps on believing in God's coming salvation. God's promises reach and extend beyond any conceivable loss that we might suffer. Habakkuk's world and our world may all pass away, but God's grace to His people will surely endure. So i got to ask then, what's our joy level this morning? I'm not asking if you came in chipper and smiley. I'm asking inside. Are you still and calm because of God? Or is your heart more like a raging sea because your life is full of difficult circumstances that you didn't plan for and you're realizing you can't control? You know, when we value something more than God, that something becomes an idol and it starts to rule us even in our hearts. Finding true joy in God requires tearing down those false gods in our hearts. Take some time this week. Take some time today and investigate if an idol has replaced your joy in God. Is there anything in your life that you you could have taken away that would cause you then to conclude, I will not take joy in God. I will not take joy in my salvation as long as I can't have this thing. Look to see where you've attached expectations of happiness, security, personal satisfaction to your circumstances. Once you've identified that area, confess it to God then ask God to replace it with true joy in Him. Verses 17 and 18 are a sledgehammer that shatters the empty and false prosperity gospel. Just shatters it. God's main purposes for His people are not prosperity, success, material wealth, and riches in this life. In fact, God often loves us and cares for us by keeping those things from us so that our joy will remain in Him. And verses 17 and 18 are also sweet promises of the true gospel. All we need for salvation, God provides. Look in the past and see salvation came to you through Christ and rescued you from judgment. Look to the future. God's judgment is coming and we will be delivered. God provides all we need for salvation. The lashings Sorry, the tragedy and hardship of today will not have the last word. God will have the last word. The lashings that Jesus endured didn't stop Him. The spitting and scorning didn't deter Him. The cross did not hold Him. The grave did not keep Him. The greatest tragedy in human history ended in the greatest triumph. The resurrection is ours in Christ Jesus. And it is the resurrection that we wait for with hope and with faith. So church, let's apply it to us. Though there is no job, no promotion, and no interview. Unconverted loved ones do not repent. Co-workers oppose our faith. Though bosses don't treat us fairer, though unjust business partners don't relent, though human trafficking continues, though nations go on killing nations, though wars are prolonged and peace is put on hold, though our marriages disappoint us, though our our cancer does not go away, though our bodies deteriorate, though our mental faculties are lost, though approval from others never comes, though our salaries not increase, though stock markets crash, though bank accounts go empty, though property is lost, though physical safety is compromised, though family members disown us, though friends disappoint or betray us, though a long-for spouse never comes, though questions not get answered, though prayers keep going and answers don't seem to return, though hurt continues, though sadness does not subside, though grief increases, tomorrow turns out harder than today, wicked prospers, temptation doesn't subside, flesh seems to get stronger, devil's attacks seem to get harsher, weariness continues, and persecution remains. Yet! Yet! 
We, church, will rejoice. We will have joy in the God of our salvation. You don't have to have anything in this world to have joy. All you have to have is salvation from God. That joy is not just for today, it's for forever. When God gives us his salvation, he gives us himself. And that's where Habakkuk closes. God is our strength, we don't need to fear. God is our foundation. We are secure when our faith is resting on him. God is our refuge. He will keep us safe until he brings us home to heaven. Until then, with the help and grace of God, the confidence of the cross and the empty tomb, and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, let us live by faith. Praying, remembering, waiting, and rejoicing. Let's pray. Lord, you're glorious in your character and your work. What you have done reveals to us what you will do. You will come, you will judge, and you will deliver. God, I pray that we would all tremble before you as we should. For those who don't know you, Lord, I pray their trembling would lead them to acknowledge that they have only hope in your mercy. I pray you would extend that mercy to them this morning. Lord, for us who have called upon your name, for us who you have delivered through your cross, Lord, help us to walk by faith, to go on in prayer, remembering what you've done, waiting for you, and rejoicing that our salvation is secure. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.